Thank you, Elder, for that music. That was wonderful. And thank you, Robbie, for your scripture reading there. As you notice, uh, Abraham was going to receive a land, and it would be for a real purpose, wasn't it? It'd be where God would have a place for his people to be a blessing to the whole world. Isn't there? Now, I wanted to make a couple announcements before uh, we begin. We have two more baptisms coming up. And Mike is part of that, right? I've had a real joy studying with Mike. We've gone through the Amazing Facts studies. And, um, and then we've gone through the book Steps to Christ. And we've gone through it methodically. You know, uh, he doesn't want to go to the next paragraph till we talk about that paragraph. And uh, it may have taken us a little while, but that's the way to read. You think about what you're reading, because it really is that important. And uh, so I really appreciate that. And uh, the baptism was going to be here July 3, but it's going to be July 10. And it won't be here. It'll be at Camp Mohaven. So I know some will be here. We won't close the church doors here. But I want you to think about it, pray about it, about going to Camp Mohaven. And I know if you can help with some transportation, that'd be great. And we have another candidate, but he's not here today. He was here for Sabbath school, but he plays at Maranatha for church service. And that's John Douglas, and he goes by Doug. And you've probably heard him in Sabbath school. He just loves the Lord. We've gone through all the baptismal vows and him and I talked Tuesday night from 8 to 9 just about spiritual things. It could be anything. And he just loves talking about the Lord and about spiritual things. And what a blessing for us to have these two gentlemen become part of our church family. But he, too, wants to be baptized at Mohaven. Okay. So uh, the president who spoke here just a few Sabbaths ago now, is it? Uh, will actually be doing the baptism. So, so we're blessed, huh? Yeah, and he's very excited. In fact, he pretty much requested this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I think the 11 o'clock service. So I do ask you to keep in prayer. My son-in-law, Yvonne, he's a pastor up in Ontario, has COVID. And he's been sick for about a week. And uh, we'll pray for him and our daughter. She doesn't have it yet and hope that she doesn't. Uh, but a little funny little story associated with that. And she called a friend back at Heartland about this. It's called a rocket juice or something. And it's made of a bunch of stuff that if there's any germs inside of you, it just wipes it out. And uh, rocket fuel. It's called rocket fuel. Maybe you've heard of that. Uh, if I get the recipe, I'll share it with you. So, But anyway, he drank it because he can't taste anything. Right? And then she drank it. And, and of course, it was really tough getting it all down. So she called uh, the friend of our, Isara, who had given her the formula. And she says, how much of this am I supposed to drink? He says, she says, well, based on your size, probably just a couple tablespoons. <laughs> and, of course, she had. <laughs> so... So we feel pretty good. She's not going to get sick. So anyway. Well, we're going to continue our study on the sanctuary. Um, that's how God makes us again, doesn't it? He remakes us. And uh, so let's bow our head for a word of prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the plan. A plan that only you could have come up with to save us from the penalty of sin and save us from the power of sin.
And we know that through this plan, we are able to be remade into the likeness of Jesus Christ. That is the good news, that we're more than forgiven. We are changed into that most beautiful image. And so, Father, right now we would ask that you would uh, surround our loved ones who are sick or who may be in the danger of sickness. Uh, We want to ask you, Father, also to be with Mike and Doug in a special way. As they have already demonstrated, they've given their heart to you. And, uh, Father, we just thank that you've been adding to our church here. Um, And uh, we know that more will come in because time is short. So, Father, help each one of us to prepare to be the best brothers and sisters we can be as we all grow together until the coming of the Lord. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay. You're going to want to remember these three words, the land. God gave Israel a land. But he didn't just give them a land, he gave them a sanctuary, didn't he? Because in that land, it was to be a blessing to how many people? All people. And the way they were going to be a blessing is not simply because they owned land, but because there was a sanctuary. But it's what that sanctuary pointed to. It pointed to a sacrifice. And every day in that daily ministration, there was a pointing to the sacrifice. And this is why God had blessed them and had put them right there in the center of the ancient world. But I want us to do a little bit of a history. Last Sabbath, we went over the overview of the sanctuary where the courtyard represented freedom from guilt. Because that's where the gospel begins. Sin causes guilt. And we want to be free from that. And when we confess our sins to Christ, his promise is that he will what? He will forgive us. But tragically, millions of people ask for forgiveness but don't believe they are. And still, they're still under that burden of what? That burden of guilt. They don't need to be. When we confess those sins, we're to trust that God does forgive us. And you're free from that. But it's because he freed you from that penalty or that, that guilt, you by faith now walk into the holy place that had those three pieces of furniture. And that also represented freedom. You're already free from guilt and you know God forgave you in the courtyard, but now you move into the holy place by faith and you know that God's now going to free you from the very sins that you commit. You just confessed. Is that right? And those three pieces of furniture tell you how he's going to do it. Candelabra. If you're willing to wake up every day and shine for Jesus, menorah, you just gain power to overcome your own sins. And if you eat from that table of showbread representing what? The life of Christ, this pure, sinless life. You gain strength, don't you? And then if you go to that altar of incense and you begin to intercede for people and you commune with God in prayer based on the merits of Jesus Christ, nothing good that we've done, but what he's done. You do those three things, you have now gained strength to overcome your own sins that you've confessed. But if you take away one of those three things, you lose something, right? But you know, the glorious beginning of the gospel is being free from guilt. The good news is now we can overcome those sins we just confessed, and you know that's not even the end of it. The good news is that by faith you can move into that most holy place and overcome things you don't even know yet about yourself. But in that most holy place is those Ten Commandments, and as we do what David does, he meditated day and night on those commandments to try to get a broader, deeper understanding of God's Ten Commandments. And the more he understood, 
the more sin he saw in himself. But you see, that's good. Because if I see something else in me that's unlike Jesus, I can give it up. It is good to see these things. And so with that broader, deeper understanding of those Ten Commandments, we learn things about ourselves we wouldn't have seen otherwise. And then that jar of manna really representing really health reform. If we practice health reform and eat that manna, Jesus Christ, we're going to have clearer thoughts and clearer perceptions. We're going to see things we never saw before. Right? We're going to have deeper, clearer thoughts. And then again, God can reveal things to us. And then there's that rod of Aaron, right? Aaron's rod. And we haven't covered some of those details, but as I look at that, it looks like uh, leaves, generally men covering themselves with leaves, Adam and Eve, meant that they're trying to hide something from God, right? They try to cover their sins. They try to cover their guilt. But here's the thing. If you're completely transparent with God, and you put on the altar your whole life, your thoughts, what you watch, what you read, how you spend your money, how you spend your time, and you're completely transparent from God, will you learn things about yourself you've never seen before? Absolutely. And the good news is if God reveals something that's unlike Jesus, what can we do? We can give it up. We already experienced that in the courtyard, right? Freedom from guilt. So we're going to get back to that when I'm back here the next Sabbath, in a couple Sabbaths from now. But I want to do today is I want to look at a little bit of the history of the sanctuary and uh, how we play into that. But we'll begin with the first sacrifice, right? The first sacrifice. From the book Christ and His Sanctuary, written by Sister White, to Adam, the offering of the first sacrifice was a most painful ceremony. His hand must be raised to take life, which only God could give. It was the first time he'd ever witnessed death, and he knew that he had that had he been obedient to God, there would have, would have been no death of man or beast. As he slew the innocent victim, he trembled at the thought that his sin must shed the blood of the spotless Lamb of God. Did he know Jesus? Yeah, he spoke with Jesus face to face. And when Jesus himself explained to him this plan of salvation and how this Lamb that he's going to take this life really represented somewhere down the future himself, that Jesus himself would have to die. And as he saw that lamb struggle, he knew Jesus would have to struggle, that it would be a painful death. But remember, in the spirit of prophecy, it says that the physical deaths of Jesus, the physical sufferings of Jesus, was the small part of his suffering. The greatest part of Jesus' suffering was not physical. It was all our sins being laid on him. That was crushing him out. And I think that's exactly what's going to happen in the lake of fire. It won't be so much a physical thing as the fact that now people have to pay for their own sins, right? All the guilt from all that they've done comes crushing down upon them. Adam, of course, would teach his sons, Cain and Abel, the appropriate sacrifice to point to the Savior to come. And in the book of Hebrews 11, verse 14, by faith... Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. Because Cain offered what? Just the fruit of the ground. There was no blood involved. There was no sacrifice. Nothing pointing to a Savior to come. And so Abel saw that the transgression of God's law brought forth death. That's an important lesson for us to understand. That people die because of sin. The slain lamb was his way of acknowledging both the claims of God's law and the need of a Savior. 
His offering looked to the future sacrifice of Jesus upon the cross, the innocent dying for the guilty. But as we know the story, Sane became enraged, wound up killing his brother Abel. And of course, the, the human race just got worse and worse, and Adam had to watch this, and he knew it was all a result of his sin. In this book again, Christ in His Sanctuary, page 2122, the sacrificial system, which at that point was simply offering a lamb upon an altar, right? Committed to Adam was perverted by his descendants. Superstition, idolatry, cruelty, and licentiousness corrupted the simple and significant service that God had appointed. So out throughout the whole antediluvian world, they took this simple service of offering a lamb that pointed to the lamb of God, demonstrating the solemnity of God's law and the future sacrifice of a savior for mankind. And they added, they turned it into idolatry. They turned it into all kinds of evil things. And then God destroyed that world with what? With a flood. But it's still, as they go through the long intercourse with idolaters, even the people of Israel had mingled with many heathen customs with their worship. Therefore, the Lord gave them at Sinai definite instruction concerning the sacrificial system. Well, from the flood, you get Noah. And the lineage of Noah takes you to the man named who? Abraham. Because Abraham would then become the man who who become a great nation that we call Israel, right? And to them would be given a land, as Robbie read. They would be given a land. And in that land, they would have a sanctuary. And uh, there would be the sacrifice. But the Hebrew people, before they came to Sinai, they had, through a knowledge of Abraham, the idea of sacrifice. They understood that it pointed to a Savior to come, but they had been influenced by the surrounding nations and all the idolatry. They had a corrupted kind of, kind of truth mixed with air concept of the sacrifice. But God needed a people who actually knew the plan of salvation, not mixed with air. Just the truth about God's plan, right? You see, man could never have come up with a plan to save himself. There's no way he could have conceived of such a plan. Only God could have come up with the plan. And the way God would communicate that, imagine if you're God and you're looking down at Adam and Eve who are hiding from him and you look at the future descendants of the antediluvian world and their thoughts are continuously evil. You're trying to think, how do I communicate this one plan that's going to work? To these people. And of course it was a sacrificial system. And to the Hebrews. They would then get a more complete. You know detailed. Aspect of the plan of salvation. And sanctuary service. But God needed a people like that. He needed people. Who had a knowledge of the truth. Without mixing it with air. A pure system. Of a knowledge of the sacrificial system. So. When God would lead these people out of Egypt, he couldn't just take them to the Canaan. They had to understand the plan of salvation before they got to Canaan. How could they be a blessing to the world if they themselves were still corrupted by the surrounding nations and their understanding? Before they got to Canaan, he says, you've got some lessons to learn. And it's all going to be in this tabernacle, this sanctuary. And it's going to teach you how I'm going to change your heart. And how you could be a blessing to all the world, not by being carnal, but by being spiritual, right? 
So a plan only God would come up with. The sanctuary service was God's chosen way to communicate this plan. And that sanctuary service, and we're going to get more into it, it's going to tell us more than this, but in general, the sanctuary service is going to say how God's going to take care of the penalty of us breaking his law, which is what? How do we avoid the death penalty? Well, the sanctuary says someone's going to die in your place. Someone will take your sins upon himself to free you from that penalty. But then the reason I committed sins is because of my carnal mind and heart. So God can't just forgive me of my past. He's got to prepare me to live a life that's new, right? A new creation in Christ Jesus. How's he going to change what's in my heart that led me to sin? You see? And so the sanctuary service teaches us how God would deliver us from this fallen nature. The earthly sanctuary was simply a copy of the one in heaven. Is that right? As Moses was admonished of God when he was about to make the tabernacle, for see, saith he, that thou make all things according to the pattern shown to thee in the mount. So God had taken Moses to the top of Mount Sinai and showed him. Imagine being Moses being shown the heavenly sanctuary, and then God says how he could make a a miniature of it here on earth. And therefore, the earthly sanctuary became a miniature of the heavenly, that we might understand the work of Jesus as our great high priest that passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, who is the minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched and not man, the earthly sanctuary serving unto the example of the shadow of heavenly things. So everything they did in that earthly sanctuary was to foreshadow what Christ would be doing above in the heavenly sanctuary. So why two sanctuaries? We need the earthly sanctuary to understand God's plan because this is where we live. We are finite in our minds. We can only understand so much. And God found a way and says, okay, I probably can't just show them up there. I'm going to have them make a miniature down here. So there needed to be an earthly sanctuary to educate us in the plan of salvation. And the other reason uh, that there had to be two, there had to be the earthly to educate us, but there has to be a heavenly is because the earthly was not sufficient because it's not possible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sin. Right? There would have to be a heavenly because in the earthly, there was just simply the blood of goats and bulls and so forth and sheep, right? But none of those could take away sin. They could only point to Jesus dying for our sins. Is that right? So these animal sacrifices simply pointed to the greater sacrifice of Christ. Now, when Christ died on the cross and rose again, he paid the penalty, but now he has to administer the merits of his life. Where is he going to do that? Could he have done that in the earthly When Jesus rose again, could he take the merits of his sacrifice and go into the earthly temple and do this? No, he really couldn't. First of all, he wouldn't have been accepted. And number two, God needed to put an end to it because it fulfilled its purpose. It had pointed to Christ to come. So the only logical thing is there had to be another sanctuary, a heavenly. Christ would have to take the merits of his death upon the cross or for us, and to administer it, he needed to be in a sanctuary. But he couldn't logically do it in an earthly sanctuary. I mean, he had a glorious new body, right? I mean, and what's he going to do in the earthly sanctuary? It only pointed to the heavenly. So there is a heavenly sanctuary where Christ is going to administer the benefits, the merits of his sacrifice for us. 
And for Christ has not entered into the holy places made with human hands, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. It's better for us that Christ is there administering his benefits for us. Now, this is where we kind of get into the sermon of the land, the sanctuary, and the sacrifice. God said to Abraham, And I will give unto thee and to thy seed after thee the land wherein thou art a stranger, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And as, as Robbie read, he would be there so they could be a blessing to all nations. All nations. No matter their language, no matter where they come from, they were to be a blessing. In fact, God had hoped, if the Hebrews were faithful, that they would not just occupy this land, but as the people came and became converted, God's kingdom would just what? It would extend and eventually cover what? The whole earth. earth. Do you know if the Hebrews were faithful, God's kingdom could have covered the whole earth? If they'd just been faithful, because the people would come and see what a great God and what a wise people this is. Look at the next verse, what Moses says. He says, Behold, I have taught you statutes. He's saying this to the people. I taught you statutes and judgments even as the Lord my God commanded me, that ye should do so in the land whither ye go to possess it. Keep therefore and do them, for this is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the nations, which shall hear hear all these statutes and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what nation is there so great? Who hath God so nigh unto them? So the Lord our God is in all things that we call upon him for. And what nation is there so great and that has statutes and judgments so righteous as all this law which I have set before you this day? Wow. God would give the Hebrew people a land in the crossroads of the ancient world. And they'd come from the south and Africa, and they'd come from the north and Asia Minor, and they'd come from the east of China and so forth, and from the west of, of Europe. And they'd all come there in this crossroads right there in the Mediterranean. And they'd look at this city, and they'd see that there's no army because God's their army, God's their protection. They'd see this temple, this beautiful temple, which wasn't for some physical display. But they made it a physical display. You remember when the disciples saw Jesus? Say, Jesus, come over here. Look how beautiful these buildings are. No, no, no. God didn't give them a a sanctuary to show, to have just a a beautiful building. God gave them that sanctuary to place in the midst of that city. So when people would go there, they'd say, what's happening here? And the Hebrew people would teach the people from the east and the west and the north and the south. and says, this is the creator's plan of salvation to save the whole human race. Your people, our people, all people. And then this Jerusalem, this temple in Jerusalem would become a, a house of prayer for all nations. Could you imagine that? People from all around the world would come and worship the true and one God. That's what was supposed to happen. And it could have happened if the people were just obedient by God's power. That's all it required. Just obey my voice. 
Do my statutes and you will be a blessing to all people. Don't look at this sanctuary as real estate. You look at this sanctuary as what's going to make you the wisest people on the planet. And you teach these nations. Well, history didn't turn out that way. They got into their nationalism. They saw themselves maybe as better people. And others were Gentiles or Samaritans. That's not at all why God put them there. He put them there for the opposite reason. That they would be the most loving, acceptable, understanding people on the planet. Realizing that all have sinned and all are in need of this plan of salvation as spelled out in this beautiful sanctuary service, which is but a miniature, they could say, of the one in heaven. Isn't that right? That's what should have happened. So was God's intention that the temple in Jerusalem would become a house of prayer of all people? And there's these three essentials that are mentioned in Daniel 8, and this is the title of our sermon. Notice in Daniel 8.13, How long shall be the vision concerning the daily sacrifice and the transgression of desolation to give both the sanctuary and the host, God's people, to be trodden underfoot? You see, God had these three things. He had a people in a land. He had a sanctuary. And there was the sacrifice. Isn't that right? What's the devil want to do? He wants to destroy all three of them. He doesn't want God to have a people. And he certainly doesn't, if he has a people, he doesn't want them to have a place. And he doesn't want them to have a sanctuary, which is why it kept getting destroyed. So that they wouldn't have a what? A visible sacrifice. Pointing to who? The Savior to come. You see, one of the reasons God led Moses back to Egypt to free the people is because as slaves they weren't doing what anymore? No more sacrifice. They weren't allowed to have sacrifice. They the yeah, and they weren't keeping the Sabbath, right? Those two things. They weren't keeping the Sabbath, and they weren't sacrificing because they weren't allowed to. And so Moses says, let my people go that they may make an offering to me, a sacrifice. So what? So everybody in the world could be pointed again that this sacrifice pointed to a Messiah to come for everybody. And the devil put in the heart of Pharaoh not to let him do it. You see, the devil doesn't want you to know anything about an atoning sacrifice for your sins. He doesn't want you to have any knowledge of a sanctuary service that spells out the plan of salvation. He doesn't want God's people to have anywhere to go. And throughout so much of human history, God's people were found in the wilderness places because of fierce persecution. This is the devil's plan. He doesn't want you to have any one of those three things. Okay, And it's spelled right out here in the book of Daniel. That there's the sanctuary service, you see, to give both the sanctuary and the host, God's people, to be trodden underfoot. And, of course, concerning the daily sacrifice. And the word sacrifice probably should be the word mediation. The daily mediation of heaven mediating on your behalf to try to save you from sin. Heaven, always in operation, daily, moment by moment, never stopping to minister, to intercede on your behalf. The devil doesn't want you to understand any of that. He wants you to 
kind of try to do it on your own or find some other kind of religion. It doesn't work, right? He just doesn't want you to know that you could daily, moment by moment, be cooperating with the very one interceding for you, even at this very moment now. So Satan understood the importance of these three things, so it was his constant objective to enslave God's people, cast down the sanctuary, and take away the daily mediation. That's what we just read in Daniel. The daily service was typified by the sacrifices made upon the altar, beginning with Adam and Eve and Abel and Noah and Abraham. They kept offering that sacrifice. And so when Israel was enslaved to the Egyptians, they were no longer able to offer a sacrifice. They were slaves. So God raised up Moses to free the people so they could again offer the appropriate sacrifice pointing to a Messiah to come. God would free them and give them a what? A land. And they were given instructions to build a what? Yeah, that's why God freed. He didn't just free them from slavery. He freed them to be a blessing. He freed them to give them a land. He freed them to give them a sanctuary. He freed them so they could offer those sacrifices. Wow. But we see in the history of Israel, they just had so many enemies. Wasn't the Philistines who had taken the altar for a while? The, the, I mean, the, the, the ark, right? I mean, they were constantly being battled by these surrounding nations who wanted to just keep taking away things that had to do with the sanctuary to keep them from occupying the land. Wow. And then we get to Babylon. Israel's not long in the land of Canaan that they begin to apostatize Invading forces would come, and they would lose their land, their sanctuary, and the daily administration. They'd lose all three. Isn't that right? So Daniel's sitting in Babylon. Babylon killed many of God's people, took the land, right? The people now are in captivity. They would destroy the sanctuary, right, 587 B.C., and they would put an end to the daily sacrifice because there's no sanctuary anymore. The devil did away with all three. You see how important these three things are? Wow. Wow. So Daniel, imagine if you're Daniel, you're not just a a Hebrew, you're a spiritual Hebrew. And you realize he understood the plan of salvation because he lived it. He understood it. And he's sitting in Babylon, this spiritual Jew, and he realized as a people, we were given a land, we have no land anymore. We were told how to build a sanctuary. We don't even have a sanctuary anymore. We had a sacrifice pointing to a Messiah to come. We don't even have sacrifices anymore. Imagine being Daniel sitting in Babylon, realizing you don't have any one of these three things anymore. Wow. So Daniel prays. Imagine this beautiful prayer of Daniel, which includes this. We have sinned and have committed iniquity and have done wickedly and have rebelled. I mean, just say it as it is, right? Even by departing from the what? That was the problem. They needed to obey. We departed from thy precepts and from thy judgments. O Lord, according to all thy righteousness, I beseech thee, let thy anger and thy fury be turned away from the city, a place, right? Thy holy mountain, a place, that's what God gave them, a land. And cause thy face to shine upon thy, which doesn't exist right now. He's actually praying that there be another what? A sanctuary, right? Because right now when he prays this, it's destroyed already. That, that is desolate for the Lord's sake. Ah, oh. So he realizes these three things. So he's really praying for Jerusalem to be rebuilt. 
He's praying that the sanctuary would be rebuilt so that they could offer the sacrifice that pointed to Messiah to come. So Gabriel, the angel Gabriel, comes to Daniel. It seems like good news. Seventy weeks, which we know is 490 years, right? Seventy weeks, seven days in a week, 490 days, but a day represents a year. 490 years are determined upon thy people. Which people are that? The Jewish people, the Hebrew people. And upon thy holy city, the word to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment unto Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks, three score and two weeks. 69 weeks, 483 years. Is that right? Yeah. The what street shall be rebuilt. That means they're going to get another what? Another place, right? The street's going to be rebuilt and the wall, you're going to be able to get back to Jerusalem. You're going to have a place again. Even in troublous time. And after the three score and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off, but not for himself. And the people, the prince, which would be the Romans, that shall come, shall destroy the what? And the sanctuary. So Gabriel is telling Daniel there's going to be another, there's going to be another sanctuary. And you're going to be able to get back to the land. You're going to get right back to the crossroads of the world where God had always wanted you as a people to be, not just to occupy that like today. So what if the Jewish people are in Israel today? There's no sanctuary, and we don't need a sanctuary because it doesn't point to a Messiah to come. And yet the Christian world gets caught up into a third temple and all this, which to me is a denial of the very sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So the land, all that, that's, that's, that's past history now. But for Daniel, it wasn't. He's being told by the angel Gabriel, you're coming back to the land. God's going to give you the land back. And he's going to give you another sanctuary so that the Messiah, who's going to come and put an end to sacrifice and oblation, you're going to have those sacrifices again. You're going to have all three again. A land, a sanctuary, and a sacrifice. But then he also tells them that someone's coming and he's going to do what? The sanctuary is going to get destroyed again. Isn't that right? The devil is out to destroy the sanctuary. He did it physically, but now we have a sanctuary message. And if you don't think the devil is just as intent to destroy this message as he was the physical temple, we'd be wrong. The devil doesn't want us preaching the sanctuary message any more than he wanted the physical one that taught the same thing. He's against this message. He doesn't want anybody to understand it because it's God's plan. He doesn't care if you have a plan of salvation as long as it's not God's plan. Because you realize if it's your plan, it ain't going to get you to heaven. Now, In Daniel chapter 8, he tells them the same thing, basically. And out of one of them, out of one of the four winds, north, south, east, west, the compasses, comes forth a little horn, Rome, which waxed exceeding great towards the south, Egypt, conquering Egypt, towards the east, conquering the Greeks, towards the pleasant land, standing right there in Palestine. And it waxed great even to the host of heaven, and it cast down some of the hosts and of the stars to the ground, God's people stamped upon them. Yea, he, both pagan and papal Rome, 
magnified himself, even to the prince of the hope, Jesus Christ. And by him, the daily sacrifice, here we get the sacrifice again, was taken away, and the place of his what? Sanctuaries were cast down. All three are there again. And the host was given unto him against the daily sacrifice by reason of transgression. It cast down the truth to the ground in a practice and a prosper. So here we have in both pagan and papal Rome, casting down God's people, casting down the sanctuary, casting down the daily mediation or sacrifice. You see, all three again. But Daniel now, as he receives this, he's looking into the future. He just experienced the destruction of the sanctuary in his lifetime and the temple, the sanctuary, and the sacrifice. He's told it's all going to get rebuilt, but only to be what? Destroyed. But when he looks in the future, and he doesn't just see pagan Rome physically doing it, he sees papal Rome doing it in a spiritual way. Because they can't do it physically because there never was another temple rebuilt. There never was a third temple. But the papacy is against... This makes it even worse, actually. Against the heavenly sanctuary. And it would cast down God's people. Is this true? That's the one. A land, a people. Cast down the people. Over 50 million murdered. They had no place to lay their head. Flee into the wilderness. Have no land. Try to destroy the heavenly sanctuary by setting up a a false one. Keeping people from the daily sacrifice by setting up a, a false one. Keeping people from the true priesthood to set up a, a false one. And that's how they cast it down. Did I just turn it off? a battery there we go but I want you to think about Daniel 8.13 this is a beautiful statement so after verses 10 through 12 he sees the temple rebuilt, destroyed and then even the papacy against the true tabernacle in heaven and then listen to this beautiful dialogue taking place Daniel's in vision, and I heard one saint. The word saint's the same as a holy one. Speaking, a holy one is speaking, and as we learn, this is Jesus. Jesus, He's watching in vision. Jesus is speaking. And another saint, another holy one, said unto that certain saint. So Daniel's in vision, and Jesus is talking in this vision, and then Gabriel talks to Jesus and asks Jesus a question. And the word certain there, actually, if you look in the Hebrew in your Bible, if you have in your margin, it means wonderful number. You know, in the book of Daniel, there are two holy ones. There's Gabriel and there's Michael. That's Jesus. Two holy ones. So he's in vision. He sees the two holy ones talking. Jesus, the wonderful number, is talking. Gabriel then now says something to the wonderful number. That's one of the titles for Jesus. Jesus. 
And as we'll discover, he's called a wonderful number because Jesus is about just ready to give a most wonderful number. 2300-day prophecy. Wow. A number that covers over a third of earth's history. Wow. What a number. And so then I heard one saint, Holy One, Jesus speaking, and another saint, Holy One, Gabriel, said unto that certain saint, the wonderful number of Jesus, and he says, how long, notes these three things, how long shall be the vision concerning the daily sacrifice or mediation, the transgression of desolation, and give both the sanctuary and the host, God's people, to be trodden underfoot. These three things come up again. And Gabriel's now asking a question, probably not because Gabriel doesn't understand, but maybe he's asking the question because that's the kind of question we need to be asking ourselves. Daniel had only seen a history of God raising up a people, a land, a sanctuary, and, and a daily, only to be destroyed. To see in vision that it would be a land again, a sanctuary again, and a sacrifice, only to be destroyed. And the question is, is there ever going to come a time when these evil forces cannot trodden a sanctuary, and the people, and the sacrifice? Will there ever come a time in earth's history where these three things will not be destroyed? Is that a fair question? Because that's all the history we've seen so far. So Gabriel's asking Jesus the wonderful number, a question. One, trodening of God's people. Two, the trodening underfoot of the sanctuary. And three, they're taking away the daily sacrifice or ministration. Now, the answer is Daniel 8.14. As we learned in our last sermon, Daniel 8.14 is what made us a movement. This is what hinges our whole existence. You see, there's really no other people in the world who are teaching the plan of salvation through the, the sanctuary. Right? Okay? But God needs that people. Because you know, friends, that's the plan. Amen. That's how God's going to save the human race. Is to understand his plan through this sanctuary. So, and he, Jesus, notice in the Daniel 4, he, speaking of Jesus, a wonderful number, said unto me, Daniel. So Daniel's in this vision and he sees Daniel and Gabriel talking. But now Jesus isn't speaking to Gabriel. He's in this vision. He's now looking at Daniel himself. And he says to Daniel, under 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. In other words, there was to come a time when never more would the sanctuary and the host be trodden underfoot and the daily ministration taken away. That time would be at the end of the 2,300-day prophecy or at the end of the 2,300 days of atonement. When did that prophecy end? 1844. The question, is there ever going to come a time when Satan can't destroy the sanctuary or his people or take away the daily ministration? Will it ever happen, Lord, where people will successfully go through to the end? That's the question. The answer is yes. There's going to come a time. And when this 2300 days comes to an end, this prophecy is fulfilled, that's when it's going to happen. That's when God will have a people. They may be physically persecuted, but they will not be spiritually in bondage to Babylon. Is this right? 
You can't destroy their sanctuary because it's, it's in heaven. You can't put an end to their priest's daily sacrifice because he's, he's in heaven. Their thoughts aren't down here about a third temple or having a physical you know, address on earth. It's all about up there, and the devil can't, he can't touch that. But that's where our mind, our heart needs to be. Not in earthly, but in the spiritual, in the heavenly. So, with the advent of that date, ending in 1844, there was the assurance that God's true people would never again be brought into Babylonian spiritual bondage and would never again be deprived of access to the sanctuary and the daily ministration of their heavenly high priest, Jesus Christ. In fact, even if we were all in prison right now, right now, Sunday laws are passed, we're all in prison, do you still have access to the sanctuary? Do you still have access to the high priest who's interceding for you, his merits? Absolutely. You may have lost your earthly freedoms but you're not spiritually in bondage because you've taken a stand for truth. Yeah, that's right. Isn't that right? And you take that stand for truth because what God taught you in the sanctuary itself. Now, in fact, not only will we not be in Babylonian spiritual bondage again, we're actually calling people out of Babylon. That's how powerful Daniel 8.14 is. That's how important... 1844 is. God finally had a people who had spiritually come out of Babylon. The fallen churches. To embrace truths that the devil would never be able to put out. He's tried. Within our own ranks, not here, I'm sorry, within the ranks of Adventism, there have been challenges to this sanctuary message. There are some who said there's only one apartment upstairs. That there's really no date for a judgment. That you can't prove this without Ellen White. Well, I'm sorry. That's completely wrong. This was all based on the Bible. In fact, our first understanding came before Ellen White was his servant. Two men are walking through a cornfield. Is this right? And they realize, you know something? The cleansing of the sanctuary isn't the cleansing of the earth. There is a heavenly sanctuary. Those two men weren't prophets. And God showed them before he ever showed his servant. And this is, my friends, is based on the Bible. This is why the Satan's so wroth with us. Notice this. The dragon is wroth with the woman, went to make war with the remnant of her seed, that's us, which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Where do you find the Ten Commandments? In the heavenly, most holy place in heaven, right? And the only way to keep the commandments which are contained in the most holy place is because you went through the courtyard, freedom from guilt. You went through the holy place, freedom from the power of known sins. And now you're having that law written on your hearts and the minds in a deeper spiritual way than you ever knew possible. And you're overcoming things you even didn't know about yourself. That's the only way these people could actually be keeping it is because they've walked with Jesus through the sanctuary by faith.
Notice our message. And I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven having the everlasting gospel. What's the everlasting gospel? It's to teach the freedom that comes in the courtyard, freedom from guilt, freedom from known sins, holy place, freedom from hidden sins, most holy place. That's the everlasting gospel. That's the good news. And it goes on. Fear God, give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come. How do we know his judgments come? Where did we learn that? From the sanctuary itself, right? The sanctuary service. There was a day of atonement. So it was the sanctuary itself, the physical, the services themselves. That's what told us that there would be a judgment hour. Satan invents unnumbered schemes to occupy our minds that we may not dwell upon the very work with which we ought to be best acquainted. The arch deceiver hates the great truths that bring to view an atoning sacrifice and an all-powerful mediator. He knows that with him, everything depends on his diverting minds from Jesus and his truth. The subject of the sanctuary and the investigative judgment should be clearly understood by the people of God. That's why we have to go through this series. This, this series is going to teach us God's plan and let's get to that here in a moment, how beautiful it is. Notice what this says in Great Controversy 489. The sanctuary in heaven is the very center of Christ's work on behalf of men. It opens to view the plan of redemption, bringing us down to the very close of time and revealing the triumphal issue of the contest between righteousness and sin. We must by faith, what? Enter within the veil, whither the forerunner is for us entered. Where's Jesus right now? Where do we need to be? By faith. We need to go where Jesus is. Does that make sense? I mean, that would only make sense. To follow the Lamb wherever he goes. If Jesus were here on earth dying for us, we'd follow him. Right? Just like the disciples. But when Jesus ascends to heaven, the holy place, that's where our faith needs to take us. To cooperate with him and what he's doing in the most holy place. Or a holy place. But then in 1844, he moves into the most holy place. And where do we need to spiritually be? Don't just be thankful for being free from guilt. By faith, we need to go where the forerunner is. We need to get beyond the simple in the elementary. God's saying, I want you to follow me. Where I am, ye must be. And Jesus has gone from courtyard and dying on the cross, ascending into heaven in in a holy place, and now he's in the most holy place, and we need to enter into that most holy place by faith where Jesus is. That's how you walk and get closer to Jesus. You be where he is and study what he's doing right now for you. There will be no greater knowledge that you could possibly have. Now, there's just a couple more here. Notice salvation or victory associated with the sanctuary here. Hebrews 7.25. He is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make what? Intercession. Where's Christ making intercession for us? In heaven. And you know, if you're in heaven where Jesus is making intercession for you, you'll be saved to the the uttermost. That's how you're saved to the uttermost, is you're with Christ by faith where he's interceding for you, which right now is in the most holy place. Leviticus. And I will set my tabernacle among you, and my soul shall not abhor you. I will walk among you and will be your God, and you shall be... My people. God being with us, in us, is associated with uh, the tabernacle, the sanctuary. If we want to learn how God can be in here and how Jesus and I can get closer, 
The answer is, it's in the sanctuary. That's why it's, it's teaching us. Look at these statements. And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. The reason to study the sanctuary is to study how you and I can become what? The temple. We study the literal temple to understand how we become a temple for God's dwelling place. Does that make sense? We're not just trying to get right answers at Sabbath school. It's not why we're studying this. We're studying it to become a temple of the Holy Spirit. Everything taught in this sanctuary is going to teach us how to allow God to dwell in our hearts. The tabernacle is going to teach us in its services how we can actually walk with God. This is God's plan, isn't it? God designed that the temple of Jerusalem should be a continual witness and the high destiny open to every soul. The temple is a design, the sanctuary was a design of what God desired for us as a people to be a dwelling place for him. Through Christ was to be fulfilled the purpose of which the tabernacle was a symbol. And all God desired his people to read his purpose for the human soul. When you read and study the sanctuary, you're reading God's purpose for your existence. You're not just reading about a plan about salvation. You're reading about your whole existence, how you think, how you feel. It was the same purpose long afterwards set forth by Paul, speaking by the Holy Spirit. Know you not that it's not just a temple in Jerusalem. You're the temple. You're the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you. If any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy, for the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. So the, ten, the, the sanctuary is going to teach us how to become holy in Christ, that God may dwell more fully in us. Right? So the courtyard is going to teach us how to be humble, ask for forgiveness, know our need for forgiveness. The holy place is going to teach us how to have that inner beauty of shining for Jesus, the menorah of eating the bread of life, Jesus Christ, and eating that perfect life. It has to, I mean, if you eat this perfect life of Jesus, it's got to change us. And then the merits of Christ interceding, the altar of incense, and then the most holy place, as we dig deeper into Ten Commandments, and I say, Father, what do you mean, thou shalt not lie? You mean just tell an outright lie? Can I lie in other ways? The other day, I caught a fish. Well, it was more like this. But when I went like this, did I lie? You imagine a life where you would never give a false impression. That's a beautiful life. You would always tell the truth. Always. Even when it's not popular, tell the truth. As we get a deeper understanding of each commandment, it is the beautiful life. Thou shalt not steal. Do you know you can steal people's hope? Oh, you'll never become anything. You want to take that away from somebody? You imagine a life where you're always giving and you're encouraging. Never taking, never stealing, never taking advantage of another human being. Not of their ignorance or their misfortune or their weaknesses. 
always there. If you could be a blessing, be a blessing. A deeper understanding of each one of God's commandments. Whoops. So let me just clue. I thought I had one more slide. We need to come boldly into the sanctuary by faith, friends. If you've already experienced freedom from guilt, if you've already experienced that he's already forgiven you, that should increase our faith, that by faith we can go into the holy place and he'll give us the victories over all these known sins. And once you experience that, you know what that's going to give you faith to do? To walk in the most holy place. And it won't matter what he shows you. Because you want to say, Father, I want you to show me today how I'm still unlike Jesus. Now, is the Holy Spirit going to show all my faults at once? No. (laughs) I I hope not. Because I'd become overwhelmed and depressed. I'd say, oh, there's no hope. But you know the Holy Spirit's a perfect teacher. He knows every human being perfectly, all 8 billion. He knows how how's to lead each one of them. He knows just the right sin to reveal, to place enough guilt on the conscience that they have a sense of a need of a, a Savior. And we all may start a different place, but we're all going to the same place. Amen. That place is Christ. But he may lead us all a little differently to get there. Because we've all lived different lives, made different decisions, have different weaknesses, battling with different things. But the Holy Spirit knows you need to overcome this before you overcome this. He's the only one that knows that. And so every day, we're walking with Jesus in a sanctuary, and we get there and say, Father, are there more sins to confess? Right? And as you understand more of his ways and his law and his character... You and I are going to see some problems with ourselves. And we're going to realize we haven't arrived, but we're all going in the right direction. And that's all that matters. If your life was cut off today, if you're going in the right direction, you've got eternal life. If your life continues, you've just got that much more opportunity to become like Jesus in this life and be a witness of his glory and his goodness. That's what life's about, isn't it? So as we continue to walk through the sanctuary, when we get back together... We're going to go back into the sanctuary itself and look at the physical things. And then we'll get and we'll start looking at the services themselves. Does that sound like a plan? Okay. Let us. Before we have our, actually, before we have our closing prayer, our closing hymn is number. (laughs) I'm sorry, I shouldn't have looked at you because 340. Hymn number 340. If we could all stand.
Amen. And just a reminder, there's a fellowship meal afterwards, and all are invited. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, may we shout the great tidings that Jesus does save, and that the sanctuary itself points to him as both lamb and priest and king. So, Father, may we find in him our all in all. Help us not to be diverted from earthly means, but help us to always constantly look to heaven as our strength and our guide. Father, thank you for Jesus and that most precious gift you've given us, the greatest one of all. We thank you also for the Holy Spirit and his perfect work to lead each one of us perfectly. So, Father, may each one of us allow him to do that perfect work and not resist. We thank you, Father, for all the lovely angels, many of whom are present with us this day. We thank you that they go to and fro from heaven to earth just to help suffering humanity. But, Father, we thank you for one another. Thank you for bringing us together as the family of God to be a lighthouse here in this community. And so, Father, continue to use us in your vineyard and help us all to grow and walk with Jesus through the sanctuary. And this is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.